Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to this uh, second session of the winter season in the historical series. Um, a particular welcome to visitors this evening. I'm conscious of the fact that we have a number of distinguished members of the V-Bomber Force in the audience. And, of course, uh, a welcome also to the numerous members of this society who helped to create and develop the V-Bombers, um, which was itself a, a big task. Um, the V-Force formed the main UK delivery system for strategic nuclear weapons from about the mid-50s until the late 60s. Um, the UK's commitment of resources to the V-Force began back in the 40s and was very substantial. It accounted for a considerable proportion of our aeronautical research, design and development effort for well over a decade. And then, of course, the force became a major commitment for the Royal Air Force. Uh, this evening we're very pleased to welcome back to this platform Wing Commander Andrew Brooks, who was himself a member of a V-Force. He flew all those aeroplanes. Uh, he lectured here a few years ago on the Victor. Um, Andrew Brooks had a distinguished and very varied career in the RAF. This is summarised on the flyer, which I'm sure most of you have seen. He served with several operational squadrons and logged over 3,500 flying hours. Subsequently, he held a number of important staff postings, as well as being the last operational RAF commander at Greenham Common. Um, today, He's an aerospace analyst at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, a very significant organisation. We hear comments coming from the International Institute for Strategic Studies from time to time when weighty issues are discussed on radio and television. He himself has published and broadcast widely. He's written 10 aviation books, including the history of the V-Bomber Force and histories of the Vulcan and the Victor. And he's currently writing a history of the air war over Russia from 1941 to 45. He's a liveryman of the Guild of Air Pilots and Navigators, a fellow of this society, and a fellow of the Royal United Services Institute. And I'm sure we'll have a very interesting evening uh, with the lecture, and then following that, a discussion. So, without further ado, please address us. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> Looking at my logbook the other day, I see I first went solo in one of Her Majesty's aeroplanes 
when the RAF had around 40 Camber and V-bomber squadrons divided between Bomber Command, Near East, Middle East and Far East Air Forces and RAFG. Moreover, back in 1964, there were more British troops east of Suez than there were in Germany. I mention these facts to make the point that 40-odd years ago, Britain still had serious pretensions as a world power. So over the next 30 minutes or so, I want to give you a personal overview of what V-Force operational history and effectiveness. And I, I trace the birth of the V-Force from the appointment of Sir Harry Broadhurst as CNC Bomber Commander in 1956. I was very fortunate to interview Sir Harry about his experiences setting up the V-Force. His command was divided into two groups, one group with its HQ at Bawtry Hall near Doncaster, responsible bases in Yorkshire and Lincolnshire, and three group at Milden Hall, which looked after the Midlands and East Anglian airfields. These were designated 1st Division North and 3rd Division South by irreverent one-group personnel. And Harry decided to put a jerk into bomber command, as he said, quote, by bringing in a few fighter people like myself. He gave the valiant some victors of three group to Air Vice Marshal Kenneth Bing Cross, an air defence expert used to working to short reaction times. But to balance Cross, he gave one group with its Vulcans to Gus Walker, the ex-England standoff and famous Second World War one-armed bomber leader. Station commander level, Sir Harry gave the first victor station at Cottesmore in Rutland to the top-scoring Allied fighter ace of the Second World War, Group Captain Johnny Johnson. I went to interview Johnny Johnson about his experiences there. And it was quite interesting. I'll just show you this map. And these were the initial plot of the airfields were main bases. And the, the Vulcans, Victors and Valiants were going to be divided between 12 Class 1 airfields. Gaydon, Wittering, Witten, Marham, Honington, Waddington, Coningsby, Finningley, Cottesmore, Scampton, Bassingbourne and Watton. There was an element of musical chairs in all this. Uh, Johnny Johnson told me he went to off first to do the Valiant OCU because Valiants were going to go into Cottesmore. By the time he finished, it all changed. Victors were going to go into Cottesmore, so he then had to go back and do the Victor OCU. In the end, the V-Force concentrated on 10 Class 1 airfields, and those of you who paid attention will know that Bassingbourne and Watton dropped off the edge. But there was the idea that it would disperse to 45 other airfields in the UK in times of crisis. I have a copy of the map of home of, of, of where the projections were of, of the bases these would deploy to in 1954. Um, one of those bases is actually the main operating base of the Royal Jordanian Air Force at Mufrak. It goes out that far where these were going to go outside the United Kingdom. Most of those sites now are only known to us as foot and mouth burial sites. But I give you an idea that at first dispersal was mooted, all the Finningley victors went to airfields just in Hampshire. And all the Coningsby Vulcans went to airfields just in Somerset. 
It gives you an idea in those days of how many airfields we had. But dispersal on its own didn't last for long. In 1958, the Vice Chief of Air Staff, Air Marshal Sir Edmund Huddleston, was commenting on the efficiency of Bomber Command at a Pathfinder dinner. And he pushed a recent surprise alert. And he was really proud that time from bunks to getting airborne of the V-Force had been 11 minutes. But with low-trajectory, nuclear-tipped, medium-rate missiles appearing in Soviet satellite territories, which could hit the UK within four minutes of launch, that was no longer sufficient. And if you read the 1958 Defence White Paper, it quotes that measures were being taken to raise the bomber force's state of readiness so as to reduce to a minimum the time needed for takeoff. I'm indebted this evening to Sir Arthur Marshall for reminding me of the trials works Marshalls did on the Valiant Bomber and the way his firm came up with an ingenious system of elastics and levers for disconnecting all the ground electrics and intercom. Spring-loading took care of the pitot head heaters and the Q-field air intakes as the aircraft moved forward. Just picture it, going forward and all these pulleys and pieces of elastic bungees and pull everything off. Squadron leader Dave Dixon, a bomber command engineering staff officer, devised something called a SimStart trolley. A great array of batteries which enabled a crew chief to, to start all four engines virtually simultaneously while the crew was trapping in. Again, after engines start at the end of the runway, all the V-bombers had to do was roll forward and scramble in quick succession. Bomber Command dispersal exercises for real began in April 1958, with squadrons being sent, I say, to the predetermined bases, and then when the scramble order was given, getting airborne in the fastest possible time. Talking to the old pioneers, these were a bit chaotic, and as one said, more like going on a holiday than going to war. Communications abounded back at base, but an alert message en route to a tented bivouac in the middle of nowhere could get corrupted or never get through at all. There was a great deal of inane running about, said one captain. Chaps would slither around in the mud on the ice or jump from moving lorries encumbered with heavy nav bags and twist ankles, <clears throat> all in the business of trying to get airborne five minutes ago. You have the unedifying sight of six aircrew trying to get into one cockpit for five, and four in the other with two co-pilots wrestling over the same seat. And then with the older guys still croaking and gasping for breath, garbled messages would come through as aircraft scrambled when they should have taxied, or crews got out when they should have carried on. Some crews have lightened it to the Keystone Cops until concrete aircraft hard standing known as operational readiness platforms were laid, leading straight onto the runway threshold. Permanent crew accommodation was set up and special caravans close by and temporary command posts with decent comms and efficient lines were established. In the end, and I'll just show you this map, dispersal fields. In the end, 26 dispersal airfields ranging from Lossiemouth in the north to St Morgan in the southwest and Aldergrove in Northern Ireland were added to the 10 main bases and the money was found to put operational readiness platforms on all but six. The nuclear weapons themselves came from number 92 maintenance unit at Foldingworth Airfield north of Lincoln the main weapons storage base for the V-Force until the early 70s. 
Such was the air of secrecy that the airfield's name did never appear on an ordnance survey map until 1980. A generally well-informed observer, Leonard Beaton, published a pamphlet in 64 where he speculated that the current British nuclear stockpile consisted of perhaps 300 thermonuclear and 1,200 atomic weapons. Whatever the actual figures, the official statement from Bomber Command in 62 that with its total of 24,409 officers and men, it had the striking power equivalent to tens of millions of wartime Lancasters. Let me go on to an assessment, if I may, of its operational effectiveness, this is mighty force. There's no denying that the plans of the US Strategic Air Command and RAF Bomber Command were closely dovetailed. In consequence, Bomber Command had the advantage of knowing that its progress in war would be facilitated by American missiles. But it was not just a one-way arrangement. Some of our targets recalled one distinguished air electronics officer looked as if they were clearing the way for someone else. And a former De Deputy Chief of the Air Staff, Air Marshal Sir Geoffrey Tuttle, who those of you from Weybridge will know well, told me, quote, we taught the Americans a hell of a lot. We had to face many of the problems first. We were nearer to the USSR. We were threatened long before the Americans were, and therefore we had the incentive to survive much sooner than they did. By 1962, therefore, given the standard of V-bombers, their equipment, the megatonnage within their bomb bays, and the fact that crews had come to grips with the practicalities of waging strategic nuclear warfare, Bomber Command felt it could live up to its motto of strike hard, strike sure. Yet the only way, I think, to test this hypothesis is perhaps if we go through how the V-Force might have gone about its business had it been drawn into a Third World War by the Cuban crisis in October 1962. At the end of October 1962, Bomber Command had approximately 140 main force bombers divided among 17 squadrons and the OCUs. Of these 140 aircraft, the air staff decreed that engineers should be capable of getting 60% serviceable within six hours and 80% within 12 hours. So aircraft were never dismantled to an extent that the required percentage could not be put back together again. But allowing for the worst case, Bomber Command could always be said to have had at least 110 strategic bombers available to go to war within 12 hours. Eventually, the international situation would have become so strained, High Wycombe would have told, been told to disperse the whole V-Force in groups of four. There, the individual quartets would have sat at increasing states of readiness. Each aeroplane was connected to reality by an umbilical telescramble link to the bomber controller at High Wycombe. And on the command from the war room in London, he would be instructed by his CNC to order the V-Force to start engines and then to scramble. On airfields from the north of Scotland to Cornwall, 16 engines would have started simultaneously. Throttles would have opened, four bombers would have taken off in quick succession, and long before four minutes had passed, there should have been nothing left to show where they'd been, save some turbulent and darkened air and the pungent smell of burnt aviation fuel. From the north and the south, the east and the west, the bombers would have met timing points and specific positions in order to comply with coordinated raid plans. 
Radio silence would have been maintained to prevent detection, leaving only the dull whine of the electrics or the dull whine of the co-pilots, as far as the AO would turn, to act as the background music, not the heroic strains of forgotten World War films. The V-bomber crew needed no chatter to go about their business. The blinds would be down behind the pilots, leaving the rear crew with a feeling they were facing backwards in a broom cupboard at midnight. Fuses could blow, equipment go on the blink, even the odd engine fail. It should have made no difference. Staccato responses and practised hands would have sorted it all out. The systems were so duplicated as to carry on regardless. And the NAV plotter could work by Astro shooting the stars from the unjammable and infallible heavens, infallible heavens if need be. All the years of training with simulated equipment failures was in preparation for just this moment. And there would have been nowhere else to go for but forward. As long as the wings remained attached, there was some measure of control and at least two engines were working. The great advantage of the man bomber over the missile was the former could be dispatched in safety to make a potential aggressor withdraw from the brink, whereas there was no way of bringing back a missile. When the politician left the V-force off the leash, it would be all or nothing. Over the hills and plains, the fjords and the seas, the V-bombers would forge on to enter Soviet airspace anywhere between Novaya Zemla and the Caspian Sea. By now, the Mark II Victors and Vulcans would have been knocking 50,000 feet. They gently cruised climbed as the fuel burnt off, although the Valiant would take five hours to reach 50,000 feet. Unfortunately, the higher an aircraft goes, as you know, the easier it is for ground radar to detect it. So carefully pre-planned routes were essential. If Soviet radars could pick up a bomber 200 miles away, it made sense to avoid them and the fighters that they controlled as long as possible. Even this meant a more circuitous route over possibly neutral countries. Eventually, though, the bombers would have to run the gauntlet of the opposing air defences. Intelligence would have tried to predict where these defences might be weakest, but any targets worth attacking were going to be defended most. And that was where jamming came in. The electronic countermeasures equipment in the back of the latest V-bombers could be divided roughly into two categories. A warning receiver to detect when the bomber was being illuminated and a tail warning radar to observe fighters trying to move into a firing position and jamming devices to do something about them. The offending radars in question were Soviet early warning and missile and fighter control radars, and the main British expedient in those days was to jam them with noise. Noise is a bit of a brute force expedient in that it relied on outshouting the opposition rather than deceiving it, but it was the best solution at the time. Once the barrage noise jammers were turned on, the V-bombers would try to streak through the confusion undetected. But the ground controllers would eventually find gaps in the barrage jamming in which they could feed the fighters in for the kill. Early Soviet warning radar area was divided into fighter control sectors, and the controllers aimed to feed their charges into a position some five miles behind the bomber and heading in such a direction the fighter pilot could see the target visually or on his airborne radar. Fortunately for Bomber Command, Soviet fighters at the time used only four VHF channels. 
and the V-bombers carried something called Green Palm, which was a VHF jammer tuned to these four frequencies. There was a good chance, therefore, the AO might be able to prevent the Soviet fighter from ever receiving enough instructions to attain radar or visual contact. Green Palm, from what I gather before my time, emitted a deafening noise like a cross between a continental police siren and the bagpipes. The argument of the time, said the distinguished AEO and author now, Alfred Price, was that if you were short of money, you'd jam out the ground control. The Soviets could point their fighters straight at the high flyer if they got a radar control to put them on, but if they hadn't got it, the interception of 50,000 feet Mach 0.93 bomber was a bit of a lottery. Some fighters would get through, and then the V-Force would have to rely on manoeuvre to try and avoid destruction. The V-Bomber H2S bombing radar have a modification for fish pool, which under certain circumstances could detect fighters around and below. The nav radar would pass information to the crew and the AO could take over the running commentary as a fighter swept in behind and into the ken of his backward-looking tail-warning radar. Bundles of window might confuse a fighter pilot who was lying on airborne radar. And it was no easy task to keep a turning V-bomber in the firing sights. The main Soviet radar-guided air-to-air missile, for example, had to be launched when its fighter wings were virtually level. Otherwise, the missile fell out of the directing beam. One must not exaggerate the advantages of these new rocket weapons, wrote Soviet missile expert General Penkarovsky. The more automatic any procedure becomes, the easier it becomes for the enemy to jam. These missiles can only be used when precise and advanced knowledge of the conditions of the combat situation is present. Maneuver can easily foil these automatic weapons. However, it must never be forgotten that a bomber turning to avoid a fighter, and a V-bomber could outturn them all above 50,000 feet, was being prevented from flying towards its target and that any Soviet fighter pilot worth his salt would ram his opponent in the last resort if it would mean stopping a hydrogen bomb falling on his homeland. Thus, as the V-Force rode in at top speed and the highest altitude cruise crime can reach, some bombers would have gone down against the first-line defences. Countermeasures and surprise, though, would have brought time for most to get through. The V-Force, after all, would have gone in behind the Thors and other longer-range missiles which if, they did not air defense, which if they did not hit air defense centers, would certainly have played havoc with the telephone lines and fragile aerial arrays when they exploded. As Sir Harry Broadhurst himself had observed in 1940 in France, all the sophistication in an air defense system goes to the wall when the lines of communication are down and everybody goes underground. Those V-bombers that survived would have passed through the fighter sectors and into the missile zones. Despite all the profits of doom, the anti-aircraft missile did not make the bomber obsolete overnight. Gary Powers, in his U-2, for example, flew straight and level without any jamming or evasive maneuvers deep into the heart of the USSR before he was shot down. The V-bomber crews would know where most of the SAM-2 sites were located. They could hear the SAM radars looking for them and possibly detour around them. But by 1962... There were too many SA-2 sites in existence to avoid them all. So the AO would try to barrage jam the missile radar and feed it false window targets. 
while the pilots wheeled around track to prevent the missile guiding computers forever having enough steady and reliable information on which to base a launch. There are many imponderables in any air battle, and it would be just as foolish to pretend that, that every bomber crew would outwit every SAM-2 site as to proclaim that every SAM would automatically dispose of any bomber. The trained men at the SA-2 site would have been more difficult to fool than a machine, and the barrage of three missiles they fired would have undeniably increased their chances of overcoming jamming. But suffice to say, the SA-2 system needed a good 60 seconds from initial acquisition to the end of the engagement, and continuous effective jamming for any 15-second period in that time would probably have been enough to avoid destruction. In addition, despite the demarcation between missile and fighter zones, some Soviet fighters may well have hung on to their bombers as they entered the SAM radar cover, which would have complicated the issue for missile controllers on the ground. Nevertheless, the SAMs would have taken their toll, especially as groups of V-bombers would by now have been split up to go toward their respective targets. Up to this stage, they were going in something like cells of six. More deltas and crescents would have gone down in flames, but those that survived would be starting their straight run into weapon release. The nav radar could often see his aiming point from 160 miles away, and the usual procedure was to home into an easily identifiable initial point some 60 miles from weapon release, where the nav and bombing computers could be finally updated accurately. At 40 miles to weapon release, the radar would change over to his larger bombing scale and place the target under his aiming markers by means of a little joystick. If the target response was weak or impossible to identify, an underground building, for example, the bombing road could still be pressed to provide there was an identifiable reference point close by. The coordinate distance of the target from the reference points could be set in offset dials and the aircraft automatically homed to the correct release point. Once the target or offsets were in, the computers would do the rest down to feeding steering information directly into the autopilot. But aircrew are only human, and at this most crucial part of the mission, most men probably would have bombed manually, if only to take their mind off other things. At this stage, a mixture of efficiency and high tension must have reigned. Outside, the fighters might have been shaken off, but the warding receivers would be chatting frantically as they picked up a crescendo of radar signals. The windscreen blinds would have been down, but even so, the occasional flash of light might have crept in underneath from an exploding bomb or missile. It would have been claustrophobic in that small cockpit. Muttered instructions, shrieked warnings, spurious alarms, blanketed by sheer, unadulterated fear. Nevertheless, the navigation and bombing system was a marvellous piece of equipment for its time, which even opened the bomb doors automatically just before the point where it computed the bomb should be dropped. As the weapon left the bomb bay, the pilot would have racked his bomb around into the escape manoeuvre and beaten the retreat. Where did the crews go from there? Your best bet, old man, one squadron leader said to me when I was young, is keep flying east and come down somewhere deep in the country and settle down with a nice, warm Mongolian woman. <laughs> On a more serious note, crews were expected to try and get home. They were given return routes, every bit as detailed as the outbound legs, and though the problems of coordinating returning bombers back 
threw outbound waves of sack bombers and into Western airspace without being shot down were not insuperable. No one postulated how many would get back. And there was never any intention of sending the remainder through to the USSR on the morrow. With a host of alerted fighters and SAM bases, all powerless to prevent the destruction wrought, but drove my thwarted rage to avenge it, the best hope for survival probably lay in closing down two engines to conserve whatever fuel was still lapping at the bottom of the tanks and heading for the British Mediterranean bases in the south. On the basis of this generalised summary of V-Force high-level tactics, what proportion of the British strategic bomber force would have got through? I offer you one valid pointer to the Chancellor in 1962, and that is Sky Shield against the might of the North American air defences. The North Americans set up what, in typical American thoroughness, a Manhattan project of air defense, which concluded that they needed a distant early warning radar line across northern Canada to give warning of enemy bombers and a fully integrated communication system and improved SAMs and fighters for interception. This whole lot was merged into something called the North American Air Defense Command, NORAD, in May 1958. Co coordinated from Colorado Springs in the Rocky Mountains. The Americans and the Canadians have every right to be proud of NORAD, but to test it, they set up a massive air defence exercise to which Bomber Command was invited. This is in 1961, and the brand new Vulcan IIs were sent from 27 and 83 squadrons, sent four aircraft each. 83 Squadron sent its aircraft to Lossiemouth to attack from the north, while 27 Squadron went to Kindley in Bermuda to come from the south. <coughs> On the 14th of October, both groups set off. The northerly wave began with B-47s going at low level, jamming out the ground radars. Behind them came the B-52s between 35 and 42,000 feet, supported by B-57s. While finally at 56,000 feet, came the 83 Squadron Vulcans in stream. The electronic countermeasures proved so effective that only the first Vulcan heard an F-101 voodoo lock-on. And though all numerous fighters were scrambled, they all concentrated on the B-52s. So that by the time the Vulcans came through, the interceptors had run out of fuel and had certainly nothing left to climb to 56 grand for another battle. And the British penetrated unscathed to land at Stephenville, Newfoundland. The southern wave came in too, using all jamming equipment and passive defence systems. 27 went on a broad front, but as they approached 50 miles from the coast where the fighters were unleashed, the southernmost Vulcan turned and flew north behind the jamming screen provided by its compatriots. Thus, while the 102 Delta Daggers concentrated on the lead aircraft, the 4th Vulcan crept round to the north and sneaked through to land at Plattsburgh Air Force Base, New York. Sky Shield obviously had its limitations, but there's no disputing that several B2s, Vulcan B2s at height were no sitting ducks, even though the opposition knew they were coming, and a few resourceful crews could hold their own against the most sophisticated air defences in the world. And the V-Force continued to hold its own through the 60s and 70s by introducing steady improvements such as self-contained rapid engine start, updated electronic countermeasures, operating at low level to sneak round all the SAM sites and mushroom around the Soviet Union and other nations of the Warsaw Pact. 
I just want to mention something about the international dimension of the V-Force operational capabilities. We know now that nuclear weapons are stored at Akrotiri in Cyprus and Tenga in Singapore. These were not just for the V-Force. They were offered to help allies in the area. Australia and New Zealand were obvious friends that Britain might want to protect when China exploded her first nuclear device in 1964. Harold Wilson offered this cover to President Shastri of India in 1964, and he was said to have discovered, discussed new guarantees to other people in the Far East. I think there was little enthusiasm among um, Singaporeans when they became independent or Indians or whatever, but the fact that Whitehall was willing to provide some form of nuclear guarantee to de deter a Chinese nuclear strike or a massive attack in, in response to anything in India the V4 certainly had the capability to set strike at the centre of Chinese nuclear technology from Indian air bases, remote as it might have been that India wanted it. Whitehall also hoped a guarantee to India might dissuade her from building her own nuclear weapons and inhibiting the spread of nuclear capabilities. But generally, British nuclear policy was there to help provide some reassurance to non-nuclear powers. And I think this is what contributed to British prestige and influence overseas. My first tour was a co-part on, on the long-range Invicta 2 SR out of Witten. Um, and the first time I flew the Atlantic, there were two routes in those days, an east-about route and a west-about route. The route through, if you like, going east was quicker but more politically unreliable. And this time we were going through the US and Pacific. Um, when I say we, uh, that was illuminating. When I joined my first five-man crew as a co-pilot, I brought the average age down to 45. Uh, the electronics officer had been shot down in ferry battles over France in 1940. And the captain, I always remember sharing with him, had nightmares in Hawaii because he was being chased by ME-109s over the desert. It was all very surreal landing in, Viet in Guam at the height of the Vietnam War. And I think being there mattered. And we shut down at Guam. A U.S. top sergeant came to me and said, excuse me, sir, is that a Vulcan? I said, no, it's a Victor, he said. And then I went on to explain about, you know, how where SAC adopted for the B-52s, the British had brought the Vulcan and the Victor for their sophisticated uh, V-bomber. Gee, he said when I finished, I wish we could have afforded to do that. And he went away mightily impressed with the Royal Air Force. Whether he was right, given the relative numbers we bought, is debatable. But there was no doubt that the sight of a Victor or a Vulcan hurtling skywards off from Goose Bay or Wake or at Guam when a fully lady B-52D took all 13,000 feet and still dropped down at the end did wonders for British prestige abroad. During the 70s and much of the 80s, I was involved in the business of controlling and practicing deliveries of these baskets of sunshine. And looking back, the international leverage exerted by the V-Force and its nuclear weapons was considerable. Hordes of people came to admire the Vulcan wherever I displayed it. I remember the Soviet air attaché coming to Waddington. Every year, Waddington held a thing called the RUSI, not RUSI, RCDS, big air show. And... Um, the Soviet air attaché always came. 
and I was escorting him, and he walked straight past the shiny Jaguar, straight past the Harrier, and straight past the Tornado without a glance, and made straight for the elderly Vulcan, because, as he admitted candidly, that is the only one that can reach my homeland. Power alone is one thing, but it has to be projected if it is truly to impress friends and overall potential adversaries. And I feel, ladies and gentlemen, the V-Force did that to the very end. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure it, it had the same effect on many people as uh, the lecture had the same effect on many people as it did on me. It, it made one imagine that one was there um, making these flights and uh, engaged in these journeys of destiny as they would have been. Um, we now open the discussion. We have a fair amount of time to talk about things. Uh, people who are... Um, regular attenders at these history evenings will know that I don't just insist on simple questions and answers, but we do accept comments, recollections and so forth from people who were involved or have a view of some kind, as long as you don't make lectures yourselves, and I'll try to take care of that. So who would like to open up with a question or a comment, and I have Harry Fraser-Mitchell who will handle the roving microphone. Oh, hello, uh, Chris Pocock. Um, actually, I've got a simple question to start with, since you mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis. What, what was the level of um, alert to which um, Bomber Command went during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and what degree of dispersion was done, and so on? By my understanding, Macmillan refused to authorise any official action. To, he didn't want to sort of rock the boat. Um, therefore, I'm relying on what people tell me because officially there was no change. But I think that you'll find a High Wycombe instituted certain, if you like, enhancements. Um, the nature of which you know, it's unclear now to find out. But in the official answer to your question, whereas America did go up the ante, officially Bomber Command did not. And that is my understanding, unless anybody... But there was clearly a readiness. Yes, I think there was a fudging at the issue. I think people, for example, were made sure they were there. I think sure. there, might, there might have been... Yes enhanced exercises, there might have been enhanced, uh, yeah, yeah. but no official if you like. Yeah. Right, thank you. Uh, question over there. Hello, how effective was the blue steel standoff bomb? Was it more trouble than it was worth? Again, there might be some very distinguished people. I interviewed people at Avro about this. Um, designed by a very distinguished Welshman, uh, the blue steel. Um, and they always just say that whenever they said to die for Francis, uh, what's, what's the efficacy of this missile? And he'd say, if you take a size, the town the size of Aberystwyth, 
and then would relate that to what its destructive potential was. It was basically, like a lot of these things, the same with the TFR. We, we always took the prototype. We couldn't afford to develop it. So what we got, I, again, I, by my understanding, was not the final version. We got the prototype because we wanted to rush it in quickly. In effect, you could launch it over London and it would hit Manchester. That was roughly what you were talking about. Andrew, I, I oh, please. Hang on just a moment while the microphone comes. It helps with the recording. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rod Powell. I, I, I flew uh, Vulcans and the contemporary of Andrews sometime. My first tour was uh, on Blue Steel Vulcans for, for four years. Um, <clears throat> I was on 83 Squadron, and uh, we had two types of Blue Steel. One was what we called a training round, which was just a shape that fitted in, into the recess in the bomb bay, and it had in it an autopilot and the navigation gear. And the others we occasionally flew were called wet rounds. <clears throat> when we flew them in peacetime, of course, we didn't have a nuclear weapon loaded, uh, but we did exercise with the proper wet round. Now, if you ask how accurate that missile was, <clears throat> On a day-to-day -day basis, if we were doing high-level runs, they could vary from one to two miles. And they, these were scored on a radar bomb plot that were in various positions around the UK. We would also do low-level runs uh, as well. We would also practice, uh, if we couldn't release the missile properly, we would drop it ballistically. So we had to fly a profile maneuver from 500 feet to 11,000 feet, bunt over, 10 seconds release, and the thing would drop, and we were scored on that. So we had about three or four profiles. But I remember occasionally they did fire live missiles. I don't know whether anyone here was around when they did fire the live ones. In the, in the UK, this was off of um, the Welsh coast. Aberystwyth, is it the range out there? Aberforth. <coughs> and... Um, it was actually quite, quite accurate. Uh, bearing in mind that it carried what we thought at the time, we were told, I'm not sure whether it's true or not, Andrew, perhaps you could bear it out, that it was the largest, most powerful nuclear weapon that we had in our armory. It was on the blue steel weapon. Um, and they were getting something in the order uh, from a low-level launch. It was about 25 miles range of about uh, two or three hundred yards. Now, if you consider that you've got a megaton weapon, that actually is quite a good accuracy. Um, at high level, if you, it was originally designed for high level uh, work, of course, and I think its range was in the order of about 100 miles. Now, that's going back some. I mean, my brain's fading a bit on this, but uh, nevertheless, we did a lot of these training rounds, and it, did have, it was a bit quirky, um, it uh, had 2,000 gallons of high-test peroxide on board, which was its main fuel. It weighed 16,000 pounds, I seem to remember. And uh, with the guys that actually launched it, the squadron crews that did uh, a, a telemetry launch from Aberporth, said it was quite a spectacular feeling that dropping 16,000 pounds in one go, clunk, and then wanging over 
at 60 degrees of bank and pulling like a good one because this thing just dropped. And if you're at low level, 500 feet was your minimum height for launch. The motor lit and it was off and it was straight up. So, in other words, you had to get out of the way, otherwise you'll get shot down by your own weapon. I mean, those are just a few um, memories of the thing. It was very restricted from our point of view as crews because we were in the vanguard of the um, deterrent, if you will, uh, the three squadrons at Scampton. We had what we call the highest ALN numbers. I think they said accounting line numbers, ALN. Yeah. And um, we were the ones that sort of were generated first of all the V-force. Uh, we were, our dispersals were in uh, Kinloss and Lossiemouth. So we sort of leapt off towards the Soviet Union first. And uh, one of the things I seem to remember, bear in mind I was a very junior officer, I was only 20 when I joined, and was, those of you who ever flew in the Air Force, you remember that you were sort of kept in the dark and fed on, what's it, for much of the time as a junior officer. You didn't need to know anything other than just fly your airplanes. <clears throat> but I seem to remember that uh, quite uh, a, a spectacular weapon and, and the thought that we actually didn't have to penetrate to the target was something that was always in the back of our mind. And consequently, we actually did have uh, some very high-value targets that were our targets, but we could stand back about, as I say, about 25 miles from them and launch the weapon from there. If we couldn't launch it, then we obviously carried on and did this ballistic launch, which uh, uh, was profiled into our, our, our normal training routine anyway. Thanks very but much. It, was, it was actually quite limiting uh, for us. That, that, that's the thing. We, what, the point I was trying to make was, sorry, just one, one quick point. We were fairly restricted on where we could go. Our contemporaries from Cottesmore and Waddington used to go to the Middle East and the Far East. We went to Goose Bay. And uh, that was quite restricting for us as, as young men. Just, um, just finishing up on the, uh, on the blue steel, um, I could make two comments. One is that uh, I think there was quite a lot of frustration around it, uh, certainly at Avro, and perhaps in other areas, perhaps in the ministry and uh, even in the RAF, that uh, a developed version, I think you mentioned that we, we only had the prototype, the first version, there were uh, very clear development plans available for longer range, higher mark number versions. And um, many people, I think, felt that uh, uh, it was unfortunate that we fell for the Skybolt offer, when, um, and that, of course, led nowhere. And um, we could have gone on very effectively with a developed blue steel for quite a long time. The other point um, is an interesting one about the um, operational side of it. I've heard it said that it, um, it took an awful lot of effort to keep the gyros organized. So to, to get the thing ready for launch and ready for action was quite a major job, you know, and it, it, that took a fair bit of effort. Understandable, perhaps. Um, Yes, over at the back. Thank you. Alistair Christie. I was OC9 squadron in the mid-60s flying Vulcan B2. 
and I was taken by uh, the remark uh, about the Cuban crisis and why we may not have uh, wanted to go to a higher state of alert and readiness. Uh, it's not well known that in peacetime there was a very, very high alert status in the V-Force called QRA, Quick Reaction Alert, and there was a, po a proportion of the force on each base armed with live nuclear weapons held at 15 minutes readiness 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days in the year. And that force was regularly exercised in terms of reducing the 15 minutes to 10 to 4 minutes to engine starts. But with live nuclear weapons, obviously, they were never allowed to get airborne. But nevertheless, they were taken right up to uh, the takeoff point on the runway and then stood down. I just wanted to emphasize that as far as the Cuban crisis was concerned, there was already in peacetime a very high proportion of the force at 15 minutes readiness. Um, yes. So when I was in the um, Air Historical Branch years ago, I read in manuscript form quite superb book about the B-Force by Andrew and I've long wanted an opportunity of congratulating him upon it so I take this opportunity of doing so now. Andrew has this unique gift of bringing the V-Force to life. He's demonstrated that this evening and we're very grateful to him for the picture he has given us of it. Hi, Andrew. Um, you mentioned the, the Vulcan and the Victor. What, what about the Valiant? Where did that uh, come in the equation? It's an interesting story, isn't it, in itself? Because in theory, the Valiant was not in the frame initially. I mean, we ended up in a quintessentially British way. We're supposed to have set up... Um, years ago, I went to interview a distinguished chap called Morian Morgan, and who I think at the time was set up to actually choose between some six various futuristic shapes and come up with the cracker that was going to be, you know, which would work. And of course he found that the Delta and the Crescent all had basically good things, so let's go for a few of each until we can work it out. Um, and then somebody said, well, they're a bit futuristic, and everybody put this down to sort of Edwards at Weybridge coming in and doing a bit of fast talking to make sure they had an insurance so we bought some of them as well and so we ended up with these various things and of course I gather there was a Mark, there was a Mark II um, Pathfinder version of the uh, the Valiant which I understand was a cracking low-level aeroplane it, it, it was built like the proverbial and it had the cruising speed at low level of something like you know the B1 or something it was really good and now Vickers men will tell us why that died. I don't quite know, but that was really the answer to the maiden's prayer. But I, get, I mean, I say Sir Arthur sent me a section from his autobiography, which I was not aware of. The marshals were doing blue steel fitment work to the Valiant. 
Um, so it just showed that for all the idea this was an interim, an interim, an interim, that it had got to that stage and people were still going to carry on using this. But if you look, I don't know if there was ever a magic plot in the ministry or whether it was just year in, year out, we, we sort of fudged this one, but I haven't quite worked out whose idea it really was to, in the middle of 64 still to be regressing these three different types when we really should have binned one on the grounds of something or other at that stage. Would you um, yourselves in the RAF have felt significant benefit if you'd just had, let's say, the Vulcan or the Victor, one or the other? Presumably, it would have lightened the load of maintenance and documentation and training and all sorts of other things. Would you have appreciated that, or were there uh, qualities of the two aeroplanes that uh, that were complementary and uh, made you rather glad operationally that you did have that capability of both of them? Could I ask you to hazard an opinion on that? I think the Victor II was not a good bomber. Uh, it was over. I've flown the Victor and the Volga. It was over sophisticated. Um, things. It, it was made too complicated by far. But it wasn't a good bomber. Unfortunately, it wasn't. I mean, you talk, Rob was talking about the low level. I mean, I just joined Wittering at the end, and I flew, I converted onto a 100-squadron airplane. But they were clapped out, completely shattered, because the manoeuvre he was talking about, the 2H, where you're going and pull up to, to have a ballistic release, you went in and you literally pulled 3G at 400 knots. And you could hear the crack um, and no wonder they were all shot by the time they went to tankers because you couldn't do that so yes for a high level lovely Rolls Royce that creamed along with the sort of wooden fascia and lovely sort of um, <laughs> thing that, 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 that Hazel had produced this wonderful oh, marvellous piece of work but actually it was not it was not good as a low level bomber at all but then it wasn't designed to be Mm. The Vulcan beautifully was, and that was the gem of it. It was, um, there was, you tell me, Avro, that the Vulcan was designed by simple people for even simpler people to fly. Um, I, I always thought that was very good. Um, and it was a beautiful, and I'm, I don't know my friends on the V4 Vulcans would say that, but it was a gem to fly, absolute beaut. Uh, and presumably there was a, there was a, significant improvement in capability in going to the B2 from the one, the Vulcan, was there? Oh, I think so, yes. Yeah, but I mean, you, when you, that spar they put in for the skyboat gave it such inherent strength that as a bomber it would have gone on. And I think it, was, it, it can still fly today. I mean, and, it's still, and its altitude performance was very good. It wasn't uh, as good as the Victor. It but, wasn't. But I then see. it didn't matter in the end, you see. Yeah. But, but in the heyday, so to speak, if I could use that term, um, altitude capability was very important, wasn't it? Please, please, I, I go will, on, please. I mean, you yes, do, do carry on. I want to give some other people yeah, sure. a chance. Well, I, I, just, just to put it in context, it's uh, my recollection the, the, the Valiant fell out because it had one of them cracked its spar at low level and it just sort of disappeared out of service. Um, it was quite old and it was 
a lot more sort of Second World War technology in it. And as you say, the Mark II aircraft were actually very good. And I, the Mark II Vulcan in particular was very good at low level. Very uncomfortable for the crew because it was stiff. There's no flex of it, but you got used to that. And we used to do low level in Goose Bay in Canada. And we could go and do three or four hours at a time at low level. And, and at 500 feet, 250 feet, 100 feet, or whatever. And our colleagues in the Victors used to come out and they do the same profile as us, except they did theirs running at is it about 10,000 feet. And you'd, you'd descend into low level approaching the target because they had a fatigue problem and we didn't. And uh, that's it. Victor was longer in legs than the Vulcan. Yeah, definitely. Went much further, but. Uh, I think the Vulcan showed its, its strength. It was really very, very sturdy. Thank you very much. The John King wanted, did, was it John? No, sorry, the gentleman behind you. Rod, Rod Kirkby, I, I think in fact you've actually answered the question I had in mind, which was that as far as I could recall from my grubby schoolboy days, the Victor had the highest, higher ceiling and the higher speed, etc. Um, but the Vulcan seemed to soldier on for longer. And I presume it was because of this low-level business. But I also thought that it was to do with the uh, the fact that blue steel could easily be slung underneath a, a tall, long-legged Vulcan and not easily underneath a Victor. Is, is that so? Have I got the wrong end that of the That was true. And also Skybolt as well. You, part of the re reason... Uh, let's be honest, there's a lot of politics in this. We didn't end up with many Victors because of politics. I mean, part, Sir Fred was told in no uncertain terms, you join or you lose your, the rest of your Victor II contract. He wouldn't join, being Sir Fred, and therefore, by the time you finish, you've only got two squadrons worth, therefore, it's not worth carrying on, and so the downward spiral goes. You... Uh, I remember seeing this thing stuck under a Victor II, a blue steel. The, the, the clearance was nothing. I mean, they had fin fold and we had fin fold, but everything was really down there. And that's a Fred decided he could fit a skybolt under it. <laughs> but so he's continually trying to push this to make it sellable. But really it wasn't. It, 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 but the legs, certainly, the Victor II SR... We could go 3,600 miles. We go Witten to Trinidad non-stop, which in 1969 was pretty impressive. I just passed that on now because you can go in an airliner to Hong Kong non-stop. That's the difference in 40 years. But in those days, 3,600 non-stop was, a, and only the Victor could yeah. do it. I was going to say, so at the high altitude, it, it really and, and was the sleek, the, the sleek design. Yeah. But it's interesting, isn't it? One starts off as a Delta, and one starts off as a Crescent. And eventually the Vulcan becomes crescenty, yes. and the Victor becomes deltary as they fill it in, which just shows actually they were both a quite a good idea. Thank you. Um, yes. Yes, hello, Tony Butler. A um, couple of quick observations and a question, if I may. You mentioned, first of all, the Valiant Mark II, the low level. The papers I've seen suggest there was only going to be about 17 of them ordered anyway because they were a pathfinder. Um, so some of the sort of suggestions that those could have been built instead of the, the standard valiance I think isn't always valid. Um, and you also discussed the various shapes of these V-bombers. It might be interesting to know that the one that was rejected from Armstrong Whitworth was a flying wing in about 1948. 
So they, um, the various designers, uh, design companies who put in designs looked at every shape that was going. The question I wanted to ask, actually, the original requirement from 1947 listed a great deal of conventional weaponry besides the nuclear weapon. In fact, it was always called a special weapon at the time. I think it became um, Blue Danube, I'm not sure. Your lecture was really on the 1960s and essentially nuclear weapons. Did you actually spend much time dealing with conventional weaponry and delivery? I mean, the only conventional weapons we tended to drop were the, 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 the little practice bombs, the 28-pound practice bombs. Obviously, we all know about the Falklands, where they went back to conventional. But I think, I don't know if Keith was there when they... Did, they, did you have a conventional standby Far East capability or, or whatever? That I was going to wait to the end, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention that. Yes, I was on the free fall. Force, 50 Squadron at Waddington in the late 1960s, and we used to have the reinforcement rollout of the Far East, which involved two things. First of all, theoretically, we should be able to travel non-stop, as we had the flight refueling um, role. We didn't actually use it, but we theoretically could fly the 18-hour sorties out to Singapore without stopping anywhere. But when we arrived, that was the only time I ever did any conventional bombing with proper bombs. And we went down to an island off northern Australia near Darwin called Quail Island. We actually dropped 1,000-pounders. Um, or should we say we dropped some of them? Because um, like everything else, when you're practicing these things, the people who are actually organizing it aren't very well uh, versed in it. And they screwed up a number of bombs far too tightly. And a number of them ended up as hang-ups and having to come back with the things. On, on, on the crew I was on, I was a co-pilot then, uh, we, uh, on a one occasion, flew over the target, we dropped one, and then we came back to drop another one, and there was a hang-up. So we did all the things we were told, and nothing happened. So we shut the bomb doors and thought we'd have to take this wretched thing back to uh, Darwin. And we just turned off the range, and there was this dull thud. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as you probably gather, this, this, this 1,000-pounder landed on the bomb doors. So we sort of very gently um, uh, uh, wandered around back onto the target track again, opened the bomb doors and dropped it somewhere near the range, um, and, and returned to, uh, returned to Darwin. When we landed, we looked at what, what had happened to the bomb doors. It was quite interesting, actually, because clearly the bomb had been slightly just one side. The bomb doors were rather like those sort of concertina doors you have when you go into a bank or something. And it had hit one side of the doors, well, the side it had hit was about, I think, between 9 and 12 inches below the other half. And they didn't really meet, actually. And there were a lot of rather miserable-looking chief techs wondering what they were going to do with this aircraft because they didn't actually have a lot of spare bomb doors out at, uh, out at Darwin with us. So that was my experience, my one experience of dropping conventional weapons. Thanks very much. Uh, yes, a question of... Oh, fine. Christopher Alderbar. Well, inevitably, I'm going to ask about uh, mark numbers and how desirable you, you would have found it to have had a V-bomber force which was capable of... <laughs> you know who I am now. <laughs> would, would have been capable of substantially uh, long-range supersonic speeds. That's the question. And the other part is, how was the Vulcan 
range compromised by flying in the high point nines, let's say. And then if you've got time, I'd like to know about daylight navigation when the astro tracker didn't work. But anyway, what about su uh, supersonic, uh, supersonic V-bomber force? I mean, I can only relate it to the fact that the Americans did go down that route and it didn't get them. I mean, the Hustler was a classic case, you know, and I mm. used to go and talk. And you talked, you look at what Avro had, the 330, Handy Page had something, Vickers had these wonderful things. And of course, to be frank, they just didn't work in the time. The Hustler came in for a bit, had these terrible problems because of the fuel and all this. What's still going? It's the B-52. It, the the B-52, the, the youngest one, will go out in 2037 that was built in 1964. Where are the hustlers? Where, where, where's the B-70, the Redeemer? You know, you go and look at it and you think, Christ. I mean, you know, these things came in that were going to go supersonic. But never, it just didn't work. So I think the technology was just not available from what I talked to people. And therefore, in answer to your question, I think we were clever to realize not to go that route, much as there was a the Vulcan Victor successor was going to be the Avro 330, and you can see the Bristol 188. Um, the higher you got, the more you tipped down and the fuel went. I mean, it was as simple as that. You know, you'd start going, and it would go up to 9.6, I think, if I remember. But, I mean, that was not the way to, to, to go anywhere and save fuel. It just wasn't. It was pushing against the door. Yeah, and it, but, well, I say you could go up to, I think, 9.5, 9.6. I say it's 20 years since I've flown it now. But, yeah. Yeah. But that, I mean, you, you, wouldn't be, you wouldn't be cruising for any sensible way of doing business at that. You'd just gobble the fuel up. They always said that on the Victor, what's his name, um, the test pilot went supersonic over Birmingham um, in the Victor One. Um, was, it, was it Hazel or was Johnny Allen? Johnny Allen was supposed to have gone, and his rear crew still hold the record for the was it um, supersonic backwards, um, sitting backwards. I think that that still stands as a record. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, that, to me, is the only knowledge I have of any of them going. You went super sorry, did you? <laughs> when I was in Cyprus, there was one of the members of... One of the members of my squadron was doing what we called a high-speed run, which meant you went up to the normal limiting speed, 0.93, and you would go through... Point nine, no further trimming. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And uh, he went through through this speed, through point nine, and it used to take a little bit of time to get up there, even for a Mark II. And for some reason or other, he flicked out. I don't know how he did it, but he flicked out the artificial feel. And so rather than have sort of 450 knots of feel on it, or whatever it was, he suddenly had 120 and he got a PIO going, and he couldn't control it. And he went down the slope, and the, of course the speed built up. And he got it up to about 0.96. And at this stage, you know, the central pressure moves back. You've got no control movement. I'm not a pilot, but I think this, was a, this is a theory. You, haven't, you, you had no further 
control movement back, you had the stick fully in your stomach, and nothing was happening. The airplane was just going down. Shit, he thought. And he ordered the rear crew to abandon the aircraft. Well, at this stage, now those of you who obviously know a bit about aerodynamics and Mach numbers and all that, know that as you go down, the air gets denser and the Mach number decreases. So all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but gradually, the Mach number decreases and he starts getting his control authority back. And the rear crew are getting out of their seats to get out the door. And suddenly, it pulls about 4G, and he's, <laughs> and he's back to about 0.9, and the wings were up here somewhere and uh, very gingerly they crept back into Akateri told the authorities what had happened and they sent out and this was the boss's airplane, it was John Saul's airplane his precious 781 and there were a few rivets popped Avros came and had a look at it and said no, that's alright and they carried on it uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just goes to show what kind of it, it's, it could grab you that aircraft, you didn't watch the speed one over here, Harry. Yes. A uh, gentleman in the middle there. Dave Pengilly, just another comment on conventional weapons. I, I had the privilege of doing CA release for Paveway from the Vulcan in West through in a weekend during the Falklands. And interestingly, whilst the Vulcan could carry 21,000 pound bombs, you could get all of three paveways in it. I don't think they ever used them operationally, but it was too long to go on the forward bomb arch and too long to go on the rear bomb arch because of the nose and tail kit and too wide to be crutched up in the staggered pattern on the, the seven bomb arches. You could actually only get three paveways in. So had it ever used that in anger, that it took a whole Vulcan to deliver three paveways. Might I just comment, Frank, that the Victor could carry 35 1,000 pound bombs? <laughs> yeah, thank you, Harry. That's, uh, from, uh, many will know that Mr. Fraser Mitchell is a, uh, a key figure in the Hanley Page Association. But he is, of course, quite unbiased. Thank you, Harry. Andrew, if I could just move away from Mac numbers and heights and blue steels and perhaps get on to the argument of the human side and maintaining morale and so on, bearing in mind the enormous responsibility and role that the air crew had and the very considerable and demanding training and continuous testing they had. Um, how did squadrons go about maintaining morale? Was it in fact always as high as we believe it to have been? And were there indeed any understandable cases where some aircrew members might have felt that they were in fact unable to continue? And how far up the line was the management of this? I mean, we presume it was station commander down to squadron commander, but ultimately, of course, the captain of the crew. And perhaps you could comment on that general human side of the equation, please. Good question. Well, as an ex-CO over there, I'll probably, I'm sure, tell you about what it was like in the 60s. I mean, oh, I, I was a... It changes. Obviously, I think in their time, there was an elite nature to the V-Force. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there was probably a high morale for the fact that if you got on it, you were perceived to be 
the elite. And I think if that was true, then that always is a good move. And then you have all these sort of combat, select star and all these gradations that you go through so you become known as the best crew on the squadron. And that always is good for morale. Um, towards the end, it wasn't getting the best lot. And therefore, there was an element of feeling that it was getting a bit frayed around the edges. Um, having said that, at that stage, we were getting lots of good overseas things like Red Flag. There were more overseas jollies, for want of a better phrase, than probably there were before. You talk to the nav radars and people like that sitting on queue in, in, in East Anglia. They never got the, the swans overseas. They were always sitting there year in, year out. And you had that wonderful one-group dining in night fiasco in 67 where there was a mutiny almost because the guys were so fed up of, if you like, just sitting year in, year out, whereas their friends were in RFG, they were in NIAF, they were in FIAF. And, you know, you could end up being the best navigator on your course you're specially selected to go and be, um, you know, a nav radar. And you felt like slitting your throat because your mate who was poor was, was doing PR9s out of Tenga. Um, so there was an element of that as well. So I'm not strictly answering your question. I'm just saying there were QRA. You know, I remember Keith telling me years ago how true this was. You could end up just you know, putting all your holes to your blind, your lame and blokes with one leg on Christmas Day in the QRA part. I don't know how true that was. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but I mean, it must have been gone. Wrong. I mean, I went when I, I was late into the Vulcan Force, but there were people there who'd been there 10, 20 years. And they hadn't never, they'd never got the overseas jollies in terms of tours overseas with wife and kids, you know. And that must have been very, very demoralizing to them. And like all these things, the force went out. And it took the Earl of Cork an orrery in 1968 to actually say to the minister, are you going to give a statement out about how wonderful these guys have been running the deterrent up until it was taken over by Polaris? But the government at the time was not going to even issue a thanks, guys. So there was, but I say you better ask people who were serving in the 60s what their morale felt like sitting year in, year out at Coningsby on QRA. I think one of the uh, points that the questioner had in mind, perhaps, certainly it's in my mind, is how did the people feel about the enormity of the thing that they would have had to do? Can I, what was the... I, Perhaps as uh, uh, an ex-Vulcan uh, 2 squadron commander, I could answer some aspects of the, what the questioner had in mind. Um, I think uh, Andrew mentioning the elitist uh, aspect of this uh, strategic force, it was well drummed into us, you know, the importance of that. So from the point of view of pride in your service and the pride in the joy, the morale was very high. But with things like QRA, where you had to uh, you know, perform on QRA, this meant separation from your family um, and while you were still on the station. You lived in accommodation which wasn't your quarter. You lived in the operations center or you had special rooms in the mess. Uh, they didn't see you, certainly, 
on a weekday uh, QRA. They didn't see you for 24 hours. And if uh, the, the CEO decided that, that he would split the, the weekday QRAs and separate it from the weekend QRAs, uh, a weekend QRA started on Saturday morning and finished on Monday morning. So you were on the base on QRA, out of touch with your family. So this, this was the, perhaps the biggest uh, um, as, aspect of uh, maintaining morale. On the other hand, things like the Lone Ranger flights, a, a crew would uh, fly off to Goose Bay, to the Far East, to somewhere in the States, uh, to Luca, Akrotiri, um, um, just carrying two uh, crewmen. So the five crew and two crewmen looked after that aeroplane when it went off and did, say to Goose Bay, the low-level routes in northern Canada. Uh, this, this, this generated a certain pride in what you were capable of doing and also gave you an, an insight into overseas postings. Um, the, the facilities on the bases were really tremendous. They, they were, to anybody else, in, in fighter command, for instance, to visit a, a V-bomber station at the time of the, the, we, we held the strategic deterrent, it was luxury. We had these magnificent kitchens in the operations center, uh, and you were fed to your heart's content. Uh, th there was nothing spared to make you comfortable uh, in, in an operational environment. So there, there were pros and cons, but I think the, the, the biggest aspect, I said, was this separation from your family when they were you know, just a few hundred yards down the road. You, you, you were out of touch with them. Now, I think that's an extremely good question. As I said, my first tour was 1968-71 on the freefall force. Um, I think as a first tourist, as a co-pilot, I would much have preferred to have been doing something else. And particularly if you ended up in the good old Lincolnshire, which is fairly misty in winter, uh, when a lot of your mates had been sent off down to Cottesmore and ended up in Akateri, uh, a few months later. So I don't think morale was that brilliant. But I think alongside that, there was a, a, a feeling that you would do the job if you were required to do it. Indeed, that was the, the, the interesting part, the fact that you were the deterrent force. I think probably the difficulty, as, as Alistair's mentioned, is that the actual work itself wasn't hugely stimulating. If you were lucky, you'd probably get one or two trips a week, five hours each time. You might end up having to get up halfway through the night, which I never really got used to, to get airborne at 8 o'clock. And then you land at some time like lunchtime, and that might be it for the rest of the week. And equally, if it went unserviceable, you could end up planning for about seven hours before you actually got airborne. Um, so I think all those sorts of things weren't hugely uh, stimulating and certainly didn't help morale. But at the end of the day, I think there was a degree of professionalism, which sometimes I think is not lacking in today's Air Force, but lacking in today's society, which I certainly remember. And it was certainly an experience afterwards, which 
I look back on with great pride. As regards the actual task itself, um, I really haven't talked very much about this to people before, but I think probably the vast majority of people um, just knew that if the chips were down, they'd do it. Certainly you did a lot of target study. Certainly you had access to a lot of material which explained the nature of the threat. And I don't think I ever doubted throughout my time on in the V-forces or afterwards the necessity for having to be absolutely clear that if you had to go to war, you would because that was the whole nature of the deterrent philosophy. If you ever gave the impression to a potential enemy that you weren't serious, then clearly the deterrent fails. And I think we've seen that subsequently in various conflicts not involving nuclear weapons, thankfully, where one side or the other, and the Falklands I think is probably as good as, uh, uh, idea as any, where one side gets completely the wrong impression what the other side would do if they did something. And the whole nature of the V-Force was to ensure that you never went to war. And in that respect, I think we achieved our aim. Thank you very much. Alistair Alcock. <coughs> Thank you, Alistair Alcock. Uh, just for the sake of completeness, could we mention the V-bomber that never made it, the short Sperrin, which perhaps constitutes the ultimate in cold feet? It was a flying boat. It was a jet flying boat, wasn't it? I mean, it was, um, it was built like the proverb. I mean, if you stand inside a valley, the beauty of the valley is if you go in there, you can stand on it, can't you? You stand on this table and do, shoot the stars. I mean, you can almost have a small, you know, ensuite facilities in there. It's big. And of course, the the, the, the Vulcan and, the, and the, the 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 Victor were much more constrained. I suspect the Spain was a bit like a Sunderland in there. I mean, I suspect it was uh, quite a quite a, a nice piece of work in there. But you look at it, don't you now, and you think, my God, you know that. You can see why it didn't go very far. It was hardly cutting edge, was it? I mean, <laughs> There's a gentleman down here who wants to say something about that very thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I had the dubious uh, pleasure of uh, operating the Sperrin for some time. And uh, I think the Royal Air Force should be eternally grateful that the other manufacturers turned out three, I won't say cracking good, but very good <laughs> V-bombers, so they didn't have to concern themselves with the very, very low-tech uh, fallback airplane. Alex Pickering, a couple of points under under question, if I may. Uh, the, f the first point is the uh, the redness in Cuba and so forth. The point that Alistair made about QRA is very well made. However, there's one other ploy that those of us who were uh, involved didn't ever know when we had an exercise. We used to have major exercises once every perhaps one or two a year. Uh, but as you were progressively boosted up the level of redness, you didn't actually know whether it was for real or whether it was just an exercise. So, so that was a ploy for getting the force ready, if necessary. Um, on conventional weapons, 
uh, I, I can uh, confirm the 35,000 pound load of a Victor, but I would add that a Victor, Victor one with 35,000 pounders on, particularly out of somewhere hot like Tanga, used an awful lot of runway. Um, on Mac numbers, uh, the Victor one was probably quicker than the rest and could easily cruise at 9.4 and frequently did when we were doing transatlantic crossings without any problem at all. And it would go up to 9.798 without any trouble at all. But the question I'd like to ask is, you've spoken, of course, uh, mainly about the, the prime role. I, I'd love to hear your comments about the effectiveness of the V-Force in, in the other roles that we heard less about, such as SR, which you mentioned, flight refueling, and um, also ACP, perhaps. Uh, yes, I mean, we should remember the first V4 squadron was 543 Valiant PR. I mean, that, that implied in those days how important reconnaissance is. I think that's the first lesson I think we've tended to forget nowadays, that actually you can't do anything without decent reconnaissance. And I think it's illuminating that in those days uh, the Lordship's Put, made the first one a, a reconnaissance squadron, and then the bombers followed afterwards. So yes, it was, it was a, a, a very important role until obviously Gary Powers was shot down, and everybody realized that this was no longer the beast for, for if you like, recce. By, by the time I was doing SI, it was largely maritime radar reconnaissance. We had 14 cameras in the Bombay, and every time we used a lot, you know, Kodak shares would go up. Um, but generally, it was just for mapping purposes or for looking for, you know, the sort of, we, we did the Moors murders and we were looking for, and so we'd fly up and down, just like the cameras do now, looking for graves and things like that. But it wasn't really operational. The operational was the maritime radar reconnaissance. You use that great radar in the front to plot ships. My war role was to count ships in the Black Sea. And I always thought, you know, if we didn't come back, that was going to tell somebody something. But um, <laughs> <laughs> other people would, ha would have a, you know, to count ships in the Med or the Atlantic. And, and so that was, was crucial. And it carried on with 27 squadron. When we folded, 27 picked that up as a maritime radar. So that was crucial until the end. You needed to know where the ships were so the buccaneers and people could go and find them. Because without that warning, if you like, from the legs that we had, you just wouldn't really know in this pre-satellite age where, where the fleet was to go and hit it. Tanking, that took over from the Valiant as well. Um, a good role. Um, and I say, the victor carried it on till the, till the end and, and it was lost, sadly lost, I think. It's just now we, you know, we, we, we're getting much more and more. But so for its time, the Valiant and the Victor tankers were, were, were very, very good. Um, I don't, you said ACP, did you say? Airborne Command Post. No, I don't remember us doing that particularly. I mean, they could relay. Did they? No, but uh, generally the main roles were. Though if you look at Handy Page's brochure for 1957, there's a Victor there with um, air-to-air missiles underneath it. And Handy Page, never short of a, an idea for making a bob or two, was pushing it as a frontline air defense fighter. 
to sit on station. And I think it had a lot of merit, and you will see that. Now, it was an idea before its time. I suspect you will now see increasingly AWACS and people like that sitting with Meteor underneath. Um, because if you've got the radar, you've got the crew, you've got the long legs, why not cut down the sensor to shooter time? Why, why whistle up for a zipper-suited sun god out of Lucas when you can actually fire the thing yourself? So I think, you know, Sir Fred had the right idea. It's just it wasn't going to sell it to, you know, fighter pilot mafia at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, Tony. Uh, just to follow that on, on from that, uh, I think the Americans had a thing called the Missalia, which was a, a very modest-looking uh, fighter with, I think, the Eagle missile underneath, and it was designed just to patrol and, and hit bombers as they came in. What I wanted to add to the sparing first of all, the sparing, the requirement that led to the sparing actually started soon after the war and Short's first proposal had more in common with the B-36 actually and it was really a bit of a leftover by the time the medium bomber came in on the V-force. But what the air staff wanted at the end of the war in 1946 was a long-range bomber according to the, the documents I've looked at much bigger than the, what became the V-bombers, but it was realised that the cost of it would mean <coughs> we could only afford to equip perhaps a couple of squadrons, and with sort of various studies it was realised that a medium bomber would still probably hit 75% of the targets, and so the long-range bombers sort of never happened, and uh, the medium bomber that became the V-force was uh, replaced it. So you wanted to get in again, <coughs> behind you, Harry. At the risk of boring you to tears, um, I had the, the good fortune to fly the Spern when I was doing the test pilot's course. It was uh, a spare aeroplane at Farnborough, uh, no longer of use for EFD. So the budding test pilots were given the opportunity to fly this four-engined for jet-engined aircraft, which I would describe as probably a cross between a, a Shackleton, a Hastings, and, uh, well, a Valiant, really. But it, it, uh, its performance was very poor. It was very difficult to handle. Um, but our, later on, of course, it proved its worth because I think de Havilland used it as a test bed for their gyron engine. And it was de demonstrated at one of the early Farnborough shows with the, the four engines, uh, one on top of each other in two pods on the wings. And, and in the lower port uh, nacelle, there was this enormous gyron engine, which presumably uh, it was worth, uh, worth using it as the test bed. We're getting towards. Sorry. Uh, sorry, I was just saying, those of you who want to know about the V, I remember asking Sir John Slesser, who's, if you like, in many ways our most outstanding chief of the air staff, about why there were three V bombers. And he said, he, he harked back to 36, where the, on offer was the short Sterling, the Avro Manchester, and the Hanley Page, what became the Halifax. And he said, if we'd had to choose in 1936 where to put our money, we'd have put it on the short sterling. 
And any bomber man from the war will tell you that was a, the real goat. I mean, you could see it coming at 20,000 feet. It couldn't get high. So that he would say, if he were here now, that was their rationale. They got it. They would have got it wrong in 36. And if you put a gun to their head, they felt they didn't. They daren't get it wrong in the nuclear age, and that's why they went for three. And yes, they're chickened out. But he felt they couldn't prove anything until they all flew. By which time. It was almost too late to cancel the orders. Okay. Uh, we're getting towards closing time, I think. Uh, is there one last point? Yes, somebody who hasn't spoken before, yes. There's one issue that hasn't, hasn't been raised. It, it, it does bear slightly on the, on the, sorry, it does bear slightly on the morale issue. Um, crew escape. Or more, more final point. Rear crew escape. Um, how did the crews feel about this? And was it just something that people didn't mention? Rod will be able to give you his view as a rear crew man. I mean, you must set in context. When it first came out, the, the V-bombs were high level. And the rationale was that there was plenty of time to jump out. Because of the age, you, know, you could jump out with a parachute. Uh, the pilots were given ejection seats simply because in order to hold it in, in, in perhaps a, an unstable situation, they needed a, a seat to bang out of. But the rationale was that there was time to roll out. You must remember the original spec actually had a cabin that it jettisoned. This was interesting. It was like the Apollo. There were going to be great bolts that you pull the thing and they fired off the nose and you see the victor particularly the room at the back there's where the behind the cabin was where the bolts were going to go and the parachute I mean I think it will correct me old um, in the plenum chamber was where the parachute for this was going to be it's just it didn't work and there's plenty of is why the handy page one failed, not least because when they tested it on a model, somebody shortened the electric cable overnight, and it, when it f blew off, it just snapped the cable, and the rest of it didn't work, bin the whole lot. Avro didn't like it, never wanted it to work. But the idea was sound. There was going to be a crew escape system for everybody. Then it became, we can't do it, so it doesn't matter. They're all high level. And by the time you get to low level, the force is always about to go in, you know, 68. It's always going to go in 72. We can't afford to spend the money. Um, Talked to people at Alf Price about that who came off Hastings. And he was saying, if, if I was taken off in Luca in a Hastings and you lost engines, you were going to crash. So if I lost an engine in a Vulcan on takeoff, I had far more chance of survival. So there were some people who didn't get phased about it. But it was a morale issue because on low level, with an undercarriage down a Vulcan, you had to roll out, miss this leg, otherwise you got banged, and then twist yourself through and jump out. And there are plenty of cases like Luca where the rear crew never got out and that caused considerable morale problems in the end. It certainly was an issue. Uh with us, and uh, it was something that did concern many of us. But in the end, when you got used to it, it was just something that we resigned to. The fact that the two pilots just behind us, or in front of us, whichever way you look at it, had a Martin Baker letdown was one of those things, and we just got used to it. 
I do believe, however, and some of you will bear this out, that there was a design that was put forward to put a rear crew escape system in the Vulcan, or maybe the Victor, I don't know, but it was ruled out on the grounds of cost, and it involved uh, taking, you know, having a big hatch in the pressure cabin, so it weakened the pressure cabin, and the seats would, uh, the middle one would fire upwards, you know, one would cant over and go out sideways, and the other one cant over and go 